And so they wouldn't, so the people are standing and they're applauding their hearts out, you know, and no one's on the stage but me. And I'm going around picking up music books and music stands and different things. Just me on the stage while all the people out there are screaming and cheering and hollering. That's a moment I'll never forget. So we found out what freedom was. Uh-huh. I found out at a very early age, yeah. you know, what America is and the difference between freedom. lot of people I enjoy talking to in life, but since 1985, (laughs) (laughs) one of the people I've always, I just enjoy every day talking to if I can, and I don't get to talk to you that often, is Quint Davis, who is, among other great things in life, the producer of the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival, and who I've been able to work for since 1985. Quint, thanks so much for being here. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. And I mean, thanks so much for being here, not just here today in Manlandia. I mean, I just thought of that, too. But in the whole world, everything you bring to the world. Thank you so much on behalf of the entire world. Thank you for being here. Well, you're more than welcome. (laughs) (laughs) I'm the one that's most thankful for that, for sure. Thank you. Nanwandia. We're in Nanwandia. We are. Yeah. It's a, it's a very special place. Yeah, Only it is because of you. Well, thank you. <laughs> yeah. no, you're one of the real stalwarts of the whole festival structure. Well, thank you very yeah. much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the one of the top level family members. Oh, thank you very, very Nan. much. <laughs> Where you told me that you handwrite 3,000 signs? Yes. Is that right? Every year. Is just, that humanly possible? It is humanly possible, and I do it every year. That's just what I do for Jazz Fest. When yeah. do you start? Just a few weeks out, about maybe about a month before we go inside, I start working, and yeah. then and I get everything done for the festival and for first weekend, and then during first weekend I don't go out and see anybody or see any music really because I'm writing everything for second weekend. Uh-huh. But I've been doing that for all those years, and it's good. But did you get out and see stuff the second weekend? Uh, no, I didn't. Come I was on. I was busy. I then I was there. Were, there's a lot going on. Yeah, there's a lot going on. <laughs> but some of the things going on are like Santana. Yeah, I know. I heard him from all the way across the field. That was fun. I heard. Oh, I get right. to hear the sound checks in the morning, and that's cool, too. Yeah. Those are really fun. So I do that. And one of my greatest sound checks I ever heard was Bruce Springsteen, 2006, when he mm. was doing the Seeger. Yeah. Yeah, that was so great. The Katrina show. Yeah, the Katrina show. It was amazing. And I still remember it so well. Yeah. So I get to hear the sound checks. And then I go out, like if something, I got to see John Baptiste this year. Oh, man. That was so fun. That was epic. It was epic. It was epic. I'm figuring out what to do with him next year. (laughs) We can't do that again. (laughs) What are you going to do? Ever. I got got something figured out. Really? Yeah. Okay. See, this is why you're so great and so much fun. (laughs) Because you figure out how to top that. That's amazing. Well, not how to top it, but how to evolve, evolve it. Right. Because you can't do that every year. Right. That's a once-in-a-lifetime thing. Yeah. <clears throat> and we want, we need to have him. He's important. Oh, gosh, yes. Absolutely. And of course, when he gets anywhere around that stage, he don't get off. <laughs> <laughs> he comes out with Mumford & Sons. He comes right. out with Trombone Shorty. Yeah. You know, he, he he's not shy. No, he's not. not and the, it was, I was sitting right behind his parents. They are on the side stage up yeah. there. And after that, like you say, epic show... I leaned over to his parents and I said, did you see that coming when he was a kid? And they both turned around and said, not at all. Oh, really? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Which is really fun. Because Shorty was like what he's like when he was three, four, five, six, seven. Exactly, right. Yeah. And, you know, I lived in the neighborhood with Shorty in those days when he was a little, little kid. And I remember him, that little kid. Um, And then he always had, pictures I see, he's always got like a trombone. Exactly. Even he's like this tall... Sorry, radio. <laughs> but he was just a little kid, just right. a little kid, and he's on stage with Bo Diddley. Right. You seen that picture? Yes, I have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. he's playing a trombone, and Bo uh-huh. Diddley's looming over him. Fascinated yeah. by this little kid. But that John Batiste, his inventiveness and his creativity, yeah. and then his ability to execute it. Right. You can think up, oh, I'm going to do something like that. 
But then to actually do it, yes. make it work, was just brilliant. Uh-huh. Brilliant. I absolutely agree. And that's why it was so much fun sitting behind his parents. You know, one of the <laughs> things he told me, because, you know, he went to New York to go to... Uh, to go to uh, special art school, uh-huh. and then he went to be on the the show, with uh-huh. the Colbert show. Uh-huh. He'd been in New Orleans for two weeks at the point I talked to him, coming uh-huh. down to organize things, rehearse and stuff. He said that's the longest he'd been in New Orleans in eight years. Oh, really? Yeah, because he was on the show. Wow. He was, you know, could only come down for a day or come down for a couple of days. Right. And I thought that was pretty amazing. That is amazing. And does he, I wonder if he misses it. I guess he must miss it a lot here. Who wouldn't miss it here if you're not here? Does he miss New Orleans? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he's got such a grand life in the bigger world. I wonder how it all balances out. You know, I'm always interested in the minutia of people and how they think about the world. Does that apply to me? Yeah. <laughs> you're interested in my worldly minutia? I am very interested in your worldly minutia. Uh, that sounds like a foot infection, but that's okay. <laughs> one of the things I want, one of the minutia that's pretty amazingly big in the world, but started out, I'm sure, as minutia, is the fact that you are the man who invented music cubes. So when you go to a festival and you see all the, all the little blocks lined up, who's playing what time and how they all how they all shutter out to mm-hmm. make a festival. That was you. Yeah, it was. It was um, very toward the beginning of 71, 72, 73, around there. And I was staying at the Marriott. Uh-huh. I don't know why, but uh-huh. I was staying at the Marriott during the festival. I'll never forget sitting up there. It was a small room, but it had a round table next to a window. Mm-hmm. And the window looked out at the river and the ships were going by. And I had a yellow eagle pad and three or four, at least, pencils, uh-huh. right? Uh-huh. So I make, I don't know why, so I make up this one column for one stage. And I start, first you got to figure out what time things are in order to weigh them in. And I start doing that and I start making a cube to match the time. Oh, it's not like now where we have a computer, I have a computer right. program where I can do it and change it and put it in because if you get up to the top and you're off like it's 7 30 uh-huh. then you have to take an eraser <laughs> and erase all the way back down right. and readjust the times to get up uh-huh and that's how cubing started and now everybody does cubes everybody uses cubes and right before we started doing recording here today you you pointed out that cubes are spelled how Q-U-B-E-S. Exactly. Cubes. (laughs) We're not going to talk a whole lot about Jazz Fest because that's what you're known for, and you've got so much a bigger world than just Jazz Fest. But I do want to know, let's just throw in there a little bit, how did you do this? You were just in college at this time when you started doing this? Well, I think it's very generous to say I was in college. I was (laughs) passing through college. (laughs) Which college were you passing through? Three or four times. (laughs) No, when... When Jazz Fest started, I was at Tulane. Uh huh. And still to this day, Jazz Fest is during finals. Uh huh. For almost all colleges, it's during finals. And why is that? That's just where it fell. Okay. Last week of April, first week of May. Uh huh. Um, and so I said, well, we're doing a great service to the educational institution because <laughs> we're teaching kids how to plan ahead uh-huh how to, how to learn ahead of time uh-huh which was total bullshit of right, course right because they were still cramming at the end <laughs> right. and going to the festival but for me after i met george mm-hmm. and started to work on the festival well it was either a geology exam uh-huh or go out and do jazz fest <laughs> <laughs> Did you skip exams to do jazz fest? Well, I, there's something called the WF, uh-huh. which is not just a plain F, but like a withdrawn F. Oh, uh-huh. And so I started to amass a collection of WFs that's very hard to equal in higher <laughs> education. <laughs> I had really a lot of them. And then finally, I just didn't come back. <laughs> Did you graduate? The only thing I ever graduated from was high school. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh-huh. Now, in college at, at Tulane, I had two things that I was studying, so to speak. Well, I was an actor. I'd started acting oh, in I high school. Uh-huh. The f- first school I went to after, after uh, high school was in uh, Illinois, Chicago, about 40 miles north of Chicago, 
one of the coldest places on the history of the planet Earth. Oh, yeah, Earth. you're right. Uh-huh. Oh, my God. That, yeah, you're you right. You get hit with a gust of wind off that wake, and yeah. it's 15 below zero. Yeah. So I went up there, and I started, in, well, I had acted in high school, and I got in a, a couple of big plays up there. So when I came back to New Orleans, I kind of wasn't doing anything. Actually, I was working in a record warehouse. Uh-huh. And I was like the assistant, assistant, assistant. Uh-huh. I would like sweep the floors with this weird green stuff. Uh-huh. And then when it came time to get paid, basically I would have to calculate how many records I had taken. Because, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was incredible because there was this fantastic, huge collection yeah. uh, of albums at the time of everything that I loved. Uh-huh. And so I would go, th- go through the library and take stuff out. And so there was a um, an audition, a tryouts at Tulane. Mm-hmm. Tulane had one of the top acting uh, schools in the country at that oh, okay. time. Uh-huh. Yeah, acting was a, a graduate degree, so it was a, a heavyweight um, yeah thing. So I went and tried out. I guess they needed someone younger. I don't know, but anyway, I got the part, mm-hmm. and then it sort of came out that I wasn't. In the school, oh. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and that, that that had its impediments. Uh-huh. So the um, the director of that play was somehow involved in admissions, uh-huh. and somehow they got me in. Oh, really? Yeah. After so, all, yeah. After all. Oh, good. So I got in. So I, I went and did that play. I uh, did a couple of plays. Then the other thing is there was a woman named Dr. Norma McLeod. Mm-hmm. Dr. Norma McLeod was one of the world's experts. Well, she was ethnomusicology, you know, mm-hmm. with in music, it's they think it's anthropology. In anthropology, they think it's music. Nobody uh-huh. thinks it's theirs. Uh-huh. But it was the role that music plays in a society. Uh-huh. That's me. Uh-huh. That's me. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, so I signed, I took, and she she had a very interesting past and stuff in in Europe that was kind of spiritualistic stuff and different things like that. But she was one of the top experts. She was asked to come over to the University of Nigeria in Lagos Hmm. and set up their African studies program. She did that in in more than one African country. Showed them how to set up an educational structure for African music. Uh So this was definitely me. I signed up for everything they had. So that was the two things that I was doing, acting and ethnomusicology. Okay, wow. Um, which I was good at those two things. Yeah. I was really good at Yeah. That was it. <laughs> that was it. Fortunately, you were good at those because <clears throat> look what it's turned into. Well, ironically, you asked me, did I graduate? Uh-huh. Next Saturday, yeah. I will receive a PhD from Tulane University. Oh, that's so great. Uh, uh, a doctorate of humanities or something like that. That's so cool. So I went from high school graduation to a PhD. That's great. So, you deserve it. Look at all the, all the hours you put in. Well, no, it's not that. I'm a sort of a dot PhD of festivals. Right. <laughs> I yeah, have something that I went to graduate school in. Yeah. I went to on, on site. I went through all the layers Actually, that someone would go through to be an actual doctor. That's what I'm saying. That's why I said you deserve it, because you put in the work. Yeah. 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 You have all these years. So this is coming right out of the blue. That is so great. And I'll take it. I'll be Dr. Q. (laughs) (laughs) Then we have to call them the Dr. Cubes. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Q. Right. (laughs) Well, congratulations. That's very cool. Thank you. Thank you. That's really, really I thought of it when you said, did you graduate? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm re-graduating. That's very, very cool. How did you connect with George Ween? How did that happen? Oh, these are stories. I know. That's what we're here for. Okay. Well, George Ween is kind of the father of festivals right. in America. Mm-hmm. In 1954, he put together a whole collection of jazz musicians and put them on the t- on a stage on a tennis court, which hadn't really been done out- outdoors in Newport, Rhode Island, uh-huh. and called it the Newport Jazz Festival. Yeah. Yeah. And then five years later, 1959, he started with Bob Jones the Newport Folk Festival, uh-huh. which ended up affecting all of American music, because yeah. that's where Bob Dylan and Joan Baez were there, and Peter, Paul, and Mary mm-hmm. were there. And it's kind of pushed along the whole folk everything the folk everything yeah so 
he he's a jazz piano player, uh-huh. right? And he play. He has a group called the Newport All Stars. So the Newport All Stars would be asked to come down and play in a jazz club that was in the uh, Royal Sinesta. Uh huh. And he was staying with Alan Jaffe. Okay. Alan Jaffe's the founder of Preservation Hall. Right. So when he would come down, Alan Jaffe had a, a house in the quarter with kind of a you know, a little house in the back. Uh-huh. And George was staying in that little house in the back. So there was a little group of people that was George was entering into with, with Alan Jaffe and Dick Allen. Mm-hmm. Well, Dick Allen was the head of the jazz archives at yeah. Tulane. Okay. Right? So... I was working in there, volunteering in there. Uh-huh. And I cataloged the whole picture collection, uh-huh. you know, and a bunch of different stuff. So George was in one of these socially gatherings with Dick Allen. He said, Dick, I need some kid to go out and find his music. He says, I know jazz, but that's not the kind of festival I want to do. So I need some kid that knows the culture, that knows where blues is it knows where gospel is it knows these things dick said well i have this kid that's working up at the archive i don't know if he really goes to school at all (laughs) but i think that's what he does Uh (laughs) so they arranged for me to meet george at cafe du monde in the afternoon went down to meet with him and he said you (laughs) okay you Wow. I think it was like $500 in a handshake or something. Uh-huh. And uh, so I was in from the beginning. 1969, that would have been. The first festival was uh, 1970. Yeah. Two years at the Congo Square. Mm-hmm. 70 and 71. Congo Square being the other Congo Square, not the one at Jazz Fest. The Congo, oh, the yeah, Congo no, Square, the, yeah. the actual Congo yeah, Square. right, right. Which is on Rampart Street, right. uh, outside Philip. of the Municipal Auditorium. Mm-hmm. So we were there the first two years, which is very appropriate, yes. to do a heritage festival uh, on the sacred ground where African music you know, turned into, really, African music, which is all this polyphonic drumming, got pressurized into because of the pressure of of slavery Mm -hmm. got pressed into a beat Uh one beat that was coherent with all the other beats right Uh and uh and that's how it started wow all funk and yeah everything yeah so i got that so he asked me about i mean i'd never done anything in the music business Right. right so he asked me about those different kinds of music and i remember i said I know those people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I'll just go ask them to come down here. Uh-huh. Yeah. That was the first place, the first time a Mardi Gras Indian ever appeared at, in public. Really? Outside of Mardi Gras. Really? You know, morning. Yeah, right. In St. Joseph night. Yeah. Uh-huh. Because I was kind of in the Wild Magnolias at the time. Uh-huh. And I went and asked them, would they come parade in the quarter and come into this festival? And they said Yes. So you started out with a second line into the... Yeah, I met a big mistake. I met him in the neutral ground on Canal Street because uh-huh. we were going to come into the quarter. And I wasn't that conversant with four-foot ostrich plume crowns when the wind is blowing heavily. Uh-huh. Well, the wind was blowing heavily. Oh, my goodness, yes. Blowing all over the place. Wow. <clears throat> but that was the first time for that. Oh, that's cool. You know, it's an interesting story how the festival got to be the festival because there was a group of people. There was a little jazz festival, little, but they had great great talent in it um, for two years, uh-huh. 68 and 69. So they contacted George Ween, had him come down. That was here in New Orleans at yeah. the festival. Was yeah, okay. the, the New Orleans. It was called New Orleans Jazz Festival, something huh. just basic like that. So they said, George, we want a festival just like Newport. George said, well, then get somebody else. They were like shocked. What do you, what do you mean get somebody else? He said, because if you do that, that's all you'll ever have, a festival that's just like Newport. But New Orleans has something that nowhere else in the world can claim or ever claim. And that's the birthright of jazz. Uh Uh-huh. And then he had this idea for the Jazz and Heritage Festival, which is really the name is backwards. It's it's actually the Heritage of Jazz Festival. That's true. It takes in all these things. Uh Uh-huh. And that's how it it happened. Wow. Wow. And... Did you? How did you feel at that time as a kid who was sort of in college, sort of not, hanging out, doing it? You're recognized by George Ween. How did that feel? 
I don't know. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> no, but it was it was great. Uh-huh. It was great. I mean, I, that was my lifestyle. I was yeah. going to gospel concerts. I was hanging out in little blues bars. You uh-huh. know. Had you ever been to Newport at that time? A new Cage you? in Zodico. Yeah. No, I never had been to Newport. Uh huh. Oh, that's a story too. Oh my God. Tell me that one. Um. Well, we did the festival in 1970, uh-huh. first festival. And so George had me <laughs> George had me come up to work on Newport mm-hmm. that first year. And he had me on the stage doing some stage stuff, right? So this was after Woodstock and after Altamont uh-huh. when the rock festivals had been shut down. Uh-huh. But there was this whole cultural society of kids that that's what they were and that's what they do and they needed a place to go. And somehow they found out about Newport and they got they believed in free music. So they were up on this hill outside of the ground for a few days in the hot sun with different kinds of medications. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> and wine. <clears throat> and then toward the... Actually, I think he had that year like Led Zeppelin and the Allman Brothers because stuff like that that they would have liked. Uh-huh. But the day before, they decided to come. Music should be free, right? So they start coming down the hill, pushing the the fence, pushing the fence, coming over the fence, and you can see some craziness going on. And George turns to me and says, go out there and see what that is. Oh, my gosh. And I'm like, you must be out of your mind. (laughs) Yeah. In in my mind. Yeah, right. So I started hurriedly doing important things on the stage, (laughs) like rolling amplifiers off and stuff like that. And um, so eventually, yeah, it um, everything they won, right? They came streaming down the aisles, running around like crazy, and they came up on stage. Um, well, this is the first big festival I'd ever done, and the stage was burned down under my feet. Oh my gosh! So that was an auspicious kind of start. Yeah, right. The first, <laughs> I said, "Boy, these festivals—they're really something." Right. Wow. <laughs> there was a. A piano that Yamaha had flown from Japan just for this festival. It was a very rare 12-foot grand piano. Oh, my gosh. And there was a guy sitting up on top of it, smashing the keys with his paratrooper boots. Oh, my goodness. Keys keys were flying off it. Yeah, it was was not great. So there was these little dressing rooms up these ramps. And I go up and I open this door, and this was going to be the final jam session. And everybody's in there. Art Blakey, Ornette Coleman, I mean, Sonny Rollins, all in this room. I said, what are y'all doing? He said, well, we're going to play. I said, I don't think so. I <laughs> <laughs> said, what do you mean? I said, you have to go. You have to go now. Yeah. Wow. Did they, did they My go? My Newport riot story. <laughs> wow. 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 Yeah. And then the first... He he's, he brought me to Newport uh-huh. on his first time on a stage, big uh-huh. stage at a show, and then he sent me to Europe on on Duke Ellington's first Iron Curtain Russia tour. Oh wow! Just me and Bob Jones, just the two of us, uh-huh. and that was the first time Bob Jones really introduced me to, to stages, okay, and to touring. I didn't know anything about any of that really. How old were you at this point? About oh. 19 or 20 or something wow. like that. Okay, yeah. carry on. That's so we, great. we did 34 shows in 32 nights wow. with no days off, a different country every day. Wow. And that was the first tour I was ever on. I'm like, <laughs> man, th- this, in- this business here, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's wild. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I loved it. I got left three countries and a continent behind on that tour. Really? Yeah. And then figured out how to catch up. I rode an open door Belgian mail train to get to Brussels because I had nothing. Uh huh. Going through these fields with cows and stuff like that. Wow. But I was determined to try and catch up. <laughs> How'd you get left behind? Well, in those days, you didn't have to check a bag right. with a person. Uh huh. So when we were staying somewhere, 30, 40, whatever it was, miles away from the airport, everybody would put their bags outside the door uh-huh. and um, somebody would come through late at night, pick them all up, put them in a truck, a little truck, and take it to the airport and check them all in. Uh-huh. Right? So you had 
the bus that took the, the people and you had the van that took the luggage. Uh-huh. So when the, van, when the bus that took the people, which is where I'm supposed to be, uh-huh. gets together and they get ready to go and I'm not there, it was like, oh, Quint went with the baggage. Oh, okay. Uh-oh. So the bus left, the baggage that had already gone, they're at the airport. It's like, where's Quint? <laughs> <laughs> and it's amazing what the brain can do to wake up. Because uh-huh. I'm sleeping in bed and something happened. Click. Didn't even open my eyes. I heard traffic. I heard cars beeping their horns. This is not four o'clock in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> Something's real wrong with this. Uh-huh. You know, and... uh no, I woke up and realized I'd been left behind. Uh-huh. And there was a, a big trip that we were going from, I think, the south of Spain to um, the north of Great Britain. So it was like two or three countries and actually a continent uh-huh. off. Um, so I started my journey. You just started training. I started doing anything I could. Oh, man, I get to the desk in Brussels and go to the, the, the gate where it would be or something like that. I'm trying to figure out flights. The woman says, oh... Where have you been? They were waiting for you. I'm like, thank you very much. How about a little more help than that? Right. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, yeah, you know. So that, I'll tell you a story of what happened yeah. on that Duke Ellington tour. Because mm-hmm. we were the first time to go behind the Iron Curtain. Wow. And at that point, the Iron Curtain was really the Iron Curtain. Yeah. You had these really tough dictators in yeah. those countries, and they had not come out to modern times. Um, so, what year were we talking about now? Still seventies? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, early seventies. All right. Um, so we go to Romania, uh-huh. right? And the first thing, there's one airport in the country that, where the planes can leave the country, and that's the only one, mm-hmm. right? So we, the door opens, we come down some stairs, and there's two guys, guys, soldiers standing um, at the bottom of the stairs and they're holding a machine gun with a bayonet on the end of it, uh-huh. unsheathed. Uh-huh. So that's my first impression. So I said, like, you're going to shoot somebody with a machine gun and then you're going to stab them? <laughs> I like how you're figuring out the logistics of this. I'm just figuring out where we are and what is going on there. Right. Like what level of what is this? And that was, that was the first big hint. So we got um, we got to the hotel. They had a um, a woman that helped you know groups and helped them not know the place. Very nice lady, and of course Duke invited her to the show. Mm-hmm. You know, so we go to do the show. Well, it was interesting. It was just Bob Jones and I, and the musicians sort of just walked from one place to the other. So we we would go ahead of time, set up the whole stage, put their music books in their things, and have it all ready so we're there with having it all set up and it's getting close to time and we're waiting for our guest and she comes and she gets to the door and they won't let her in and i'm go down there i said no this is mr ellington's guest we do this at every show he always has a guest it's mr ellington's personal guest they didn't open the door and two guys showed up and took her away really yeah really so we go on and do the show. Now, this is the first time. These people have been listening to, you know, radio from America. Uh-huh. Um, I don't know, since World War II. Uh-huh. Right. And they, so they've been hearing Duke Ellington, uh-huh. you know, the whole time. Right. And now he was actually going to be there uh-huh. for the first time. It was, it was an, an incredible energy and environment around that each time. So the curtain goes up. We do the show, or the reg- the normal show. People are going nuts. I mean, like a rock show. They're going crazy. And we get to the end of the normal show and get ready to do the encores. We do t- at least two encores. Uh-huh. And a giant steel curtain comes down behind the cloth curtain. And I'm telling them, well, we have to do the rest of the show. I said, no, that's it. That's it. So there was an actual steel curtain. Wow. Actual steel curtain that uh-huh. was on the stage. Huh. And so they wouldn't so the people are standing and they're applauding their hearts out. 
you know, and no one's on the stage but me, and I'm going around picking up music books and music stands and different things, just me on the stage while all the people out there are screaming and cheering and hollering. That's a moment I'll never forget. So we found out what freedom was. Uh-huh. I found out at a very early age yeah. you know, what America is and the difference between freedom. These people, they had papers to say what city they were in. Uh-huh. And if they wanted to go to a different city, they had to get like a perm- uh, some kind of permit to go to that other city. Because if they were in the other city walking around and somebody, law enforcement, soldier, something, stopped them and asked to see their papers and they didn't have the right papers to be there. Uh-huh. They were in trouble. They had uh-huh. to go back. And here we were going from country to country to country every day. Yeah. And these people had a problem going to another city wow. in their country. Yeah. It was, it was stunning. It was very impactful. Did you find out what happened to Duke Ellington's guest, the lady no. who was taken away? No, I didn't find out what happened wow. to him. Wow, yeah. wow. Even if she was all right? But that was... Went behind the Iron Curtain That's in right. the Iron Curtain. You're literally behind. Wow. L- literally, yeah. Yes. Wow. That is amazing. Wow. <laughs> yeah, Duke, you know, at that point, the, the, the orchestra was really classic because they had still a bunch of the guys that were like almost original guys, yeah. you know, from way back in the 50s and stuff. And I'm like, you know, we, we get all the bags, we go put them outside of each person's door, mm-hmm. we do everything. Um, and I'm asking them, why don't you take the... Man, I would I would be somewhere and want to get something to drink or something, and I'd have money in my pocket that was two countries ago because uh-huh. it just went that right. fast. So I went to, I think, maybe Giesel, Giesel Minerva, who was an alto player, one of the classic guys. Russell Cope, Cope, Procope was still in that band. It, it, it was amazing. Um, I said, why don't you take a day off? You can take days off. Other groups take days off. And he said, oh, no. He said, when we have a show, we play an hour and a half. If it's a day off, he'll rehearse us on new material for four hours. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No days off, please. <laughs> Don't bring it up again. <laughs> oh, wow. So that was Duke. How long did you do that? How long was this? How Tell me that progression then. Was this something that rolled into something else, or what happened next? Well, yeah, I started being a road manager. Uh-huh. I did. I took B.B. King and Muddy Waters to Africa for the first time in history. Wow. I did. I did um, McCoy Tyner's first tour after John Coltrane passed away, John Mayall. But I did two Chuck Berries, a Fats Domino, uh, John Mayall, I said. Um, those are the two that <laughs> that stick out. <laughs> yeah, and why do they stick out? <laughs> oh my God! Well, I could do a whole podcast on Chuck Berry. Well, so- <laughs> alone, alone. With Fats Domino, we were playing this place called Andorra, mm-hmm. which kind of doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. It, it's way up in the Alps, and it's on the line between two countries, so mm-hmm. it's not really in a country, mm-hmm. and it's a very rare, rare place. I don't know how we got hooked up to do that. So this was Fats Domino. Uh-huh. So. The bandit, I'm on standing on stage, on stage right, we call it, over to the right side if you're on the stage. Right. And Reggie Hall, his kind of manager guy, he was up there somewhere. And I'm like swaying. And I go, Reggie, I think the stage is moving. He said, oh, no, it was just rocking out. The band's rocking, everything's rocking. I said, I don't know, I, I think the stage is moving, not me. Uh, it's okay. So I go back to where I was. So at the end of a concert, Fats stands up, starts the Saints go marching in, and bumps these giant grand pianos all the way across the stage. Boom. Wow. Boom. 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 <laughs> so we're in the last song. He bumps the piano, playing Saints go marching in. The stage opens up. No. To the piano. The front half of the piano goes down, straight down, right? So this is going to be a rock and roll moment. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Because everything kind of stopped for a minute. And then Fats comes back out and starts playing Saints on the keyboard that's sticking out of the bottom, (laughs) sticking out of the stage because it went down nose first. Yeah. Yeah, so everybody came back 
and uh, and finished playing Saints Go Marching In <laughs> with the piano down, down, in, the down, hole. In the st- down in the hole, <laughs> put the keyboard up high enough where Fast could play. <laughs> That's wild. That was wild. That is wild. Yeah. But then, then not so sweet, we went back into the dressing room, and we're sitting in the little dressing rooms, and everything started to Ooh. shake. And the whole stage started coming apart. We just get running out of there. Teddy Roll, the guitar player, got a cut on his hand, which for a musician, yeah. you can get your foot cut off and be okay, unless you're a drummer. Um, but your hands, right. anything happens to your hands, you, you, you can't play. Um, so we got out of there, and the whole stage came down. Really? Yeah. And was it, well, what created this? What caused the stage to come apart? Was it an earthquake, or what was going on? Well, Fats hitting the piano is kind of oh, an earthquake. There you go. No, no, it was just <laughs> shoddy work. Wow. They didn't know how to build a stage. They didn't wow. build it right. Whatever um, supports that you need, lateral supports under there, they didn't uh-huh. have them. Wow. Like they did part of a frame, but they didn't do the rest of the stuff you have to do. Right. Wow. And it just came apart. That's amazing. They don't have too many concerts in Andorra. <laughs> That's probably why. Wow. Um what were people like Duke Ellington and Fats Domino in those days? I mean, what were they like to tra- to travel with? What was Duke Ellington like? Oh man, Duke. Well, we traveled with like a ten pound uh, sack of sugar and and a and a bag of uh, lemons, a uh, big huh? big bag of lemons, because that was his thing. Uh. And, and he had would have a Coca Cola, put an inch or so of sugar at the bottom. Wow. And, and squeeze in a couple of lemons and stir that up. Wow. And that's what he drank. He drank that uh, at the show, and he um, drank it. Well, we had to set up a piano mm-hmm. in his room everywhere we went. He was in a suite because after the show, he would go and compose. And so he would get his you know, stuff together and... Uh, have his little drink on the piano, and uh, and compose at night. Wow! I mean, he was amazing. That's so cool. Yeah, he was a this like Elizabethan gentleman. I can imagine. You know? That's yeah. He was like royalty. I bet. How he carried himself and how he talked and stuff. He, I have framed in my office uh, a picture of him that says to Quint, you know, thank you for everything and thank you for this and that. And he sent those out like about three weeks before he passed away. Really? So he knew what he was doing. Wow. You know, and how he remembered me from that tour, or nobody did. Wow, that's so and cool. I, and I got, I got the farewell letter. Oh, that's of really thanks. sweet. Thanks, yeah, from Duke Ellington. That's very cool. Well, I have two jazz fest stories. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And I have three Chuck Berry stories. Uh huh. One of the Chuck Berry stories could be a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I'll start with, with uh, Chet, because all the Chuck Berry things are in Europe. All right. Because that's where I was tour managing. Yeah. Um, so it was Stevie Wonder, Snoop Dogg, and Wilco. Uh-huh. And we had the biggest rain probably ever during the festival. What year was this? About approximately. How many years ago? I don't know. What era of the festival? I don't know. Okay, go ahead. I remember everything that happens, but I don't remember when. All right. Like this year's festival is the same length of time back as something 20 years ago. I understand. Once they're over, they go into the memory bank, but I don't know what year anything is. That's fine. If you look up the year that that Prince died, Okay. that that would be the year. All right. And Stevie Wonder had worked out, it was going to be incredible, you know, a, a... a, a dedication, more than a dedication, a memorial uh-huh. to Prince that he uh-huh. was going to do in his show. And he'd practice Prince songs to play. Oh, my gosh. So this rain came and came and came and came and came and came. And it the, it, it, it didn't take the screens off because we were going to put up a message saying, I'm sorry, you know, you have to go now. The festival's over on the screens. Uh-huh. But this, this, the PA system went off because the... the the snakes that were going out to the mix place, they weren't waterproof. Okay. They are now. Yeah. <laughs> I, actually, that, I do remember this year now. Go ahead. That all uh-huh. went underwater, and so the PA turned off. Uh-huh. So I, look, I looked over to my left, and the, there's a big swale over there. 
and there was a guy swimming, and he swam past a duck. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, this is not good. <laughs> this is really not good. <laughs> so we go, so we're shutting everything down. We're putting the message up, please go home. And a guy comes up and says, Stevie wants to come to the stage. And I'm like, Stevie wants to come to the stage. So I tell him, don't put the message up, because we don't want that vibe out there you got to go when stevie wanted to come to the stage and he was wearing this gold brocade uh jacket that was unbelievable and it was gonna be his prince thing so he comes up there and he starts pan saying things with his mouth and his hands so people can read his lips or understand what he's saying so we're all like get a megaphone Get a megaphone. Get wow. a, any kind of megaphone. Well, the streets were flooded. You couldn't go get anything. Somebody had a little plastic megaphone. Wow. Like a toy megaphone. Uh-huh. Right? So they finally, they come run it up, and they give that to him. We, I give it to him. And, um, of course, everybody's out there. And he um, says a few things. And then he asked everybody out there to please join him. And singing Purple Rain. <laughs> wow. And he sang Purple Rain in the little megaphone with 20,000 people singing along with it. Now that's a moment. That is a moment. That's a moment. Yes. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Now Aretha is a different kind of moment. Because uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Aretha was headlining Friday, second Friday. Mm-hmm. On the Thursday was the big oil spill. Oh, okay. In the Gulf. Yes. Yes. And so she, we get word, her, her bodyguard kind of guy is is friends with Darlene Chan, who's our California festival producer. Well, she books the talent. Right. Uh-huh. She knows the talent. Yeah. And he, he says, I think Aretha's getting ready to leave. She said, what? I think she's getting ready to leave. He said, oh, no. Well, let me know what's happening. Let me know what's happening over there. So we get a call back that um, she was starting to pack. Because the thing was, she knew that New Orleans was going to be flooded with this oil. Uh-huh. And she, she didn't want it to breathe it. I mean, a whole day, oh, right. a whole day of musicians played. Yeah. Okay, and they were all fine. Yeah. yeah. And Homeland Security had put out a message. Oh, it's okay, everything. For New Orleans. I mean, the thing's 100 miles out in the Gulf. Right. Right? Um, so I go to Homeland Security. I go to the, the chief of police and get him to go to Homeland Security. I said, I need a letter from Homeland that says it's safe in New Orleans, right? That there's nothing in the air. There's nothing in the anything. Uh-huh. New Orleans is safe. So they say, okay, well, now Homeland Security is a little busy uh-huh, right. <laughs> with the biggest natural disaster thing <laughs> in America. Uh-huh. One of the biggest ever, the oil spill. Yeah. So... So we get a call now, yes, she's packing. Oh, it's not good. So we get another call, and she's called her bus driver. Told She's at the Windsor Court. Mm-hmm. Called her bus driver wherever he was staying. Said, bring the bus over here. So that he brings the bus over there. So I get word from the police. We got the letter from Homeland. They brought it to me and said, what should we do with it? I said, frame it. <laughs> She's eating barbecue in Birmingham. Wow. <laughs> she got on the bus and she left. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. So now we don't have a headliner uh-huh. for Friday. Uh-huh. It's Thursday afternoon. So Darwin kind of starts checking around, and Earth, Wind, and Fire has a show coming up on the Gulf Coast. So that means that they're going to come this direction and some of their gear is here already uh-huh. to play. So she goes to the agent for Earth, Wind, and Fire, trying to start tracking them down. The lead singer's in a rouses buying drumsticks. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what he was cooking, but he was, he was buying drumsticks when we started to gather these guys up and talk to them about coming to play the next day. Uh-huh. So one by one, we find them. So then we have to charter a jet. And not a small jet, because uh-huh. it has to have earth, wind, and fire. It has to have the crew. It has to have gear. So word comes back to me that 
the plane will be $43,000. Oh, my gosh. I say, oh, oh, yeah. And we have to have verification that you paid it before we'll release it. Wow. And before they'll get on it. So they, I don't think we had email then. I guess we did. Somehow um, printed out the rental form, which I filled out. Uh-huh. Right. And then I took a check. You know, it's, it, there's, there's a saying that we have, how can I be out of money when I have so many checks? <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. So I take a check and I write it for $43,000. <laughs> You know, I have like $430 in my bank account, <laughs> yeah. right? And we put it in the copy machine, scan it, send it out to them. They release the plane. Wow. And they get on and they fly overnight, red eye overnight, and pretty much come straight to the stage and play play their ass off. Wow. A great EWF show. Wow. EWF is one of the Jazz Fest people. Yeah. You know, they're, right. one, of, they're one of our people. Yeah. Um, so that was, that was the Aretha story. I think she had seen... She had seen footage of Katrina mm-hmm. where people oh, were right. being lifted off the roofs. She was afraid, yeah. And she didn't want to get lifted off the roof uh-huh. of the hotel by a helicopter. Right. And then she thought she wouldn't be able to breathe because of what was in the air. Right. She was eating barbecue in Birmingham. <laughs> I'm not just making that up because it sounds good. I believe you. <laughs> but it's true. Um Wow. So that's that's a couple of Jazz Fest stories. Yeah. And, you know, it's one of the things that I find, and it's got to be just the makeup of a person, I don't know where it comes from, but when I'm finding out that all of a sudden the backdrop on the stage isn't going to work and, you know, it's the last second, we've got to make it happen, even though it's scary, it's all the things, there's something in it just really energizes me and makes me go, Okay, make this happen, and you pull off a miracle, and you feel so great about it. But it's not—it's—it's it's scary, but energizing all at the same time. And 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 I wonder about that with you when you've got something like that. How do? You, what does your body chemistry do when all of a sudden the headliner's not showing up or whatever else is happening? Well, we just go into just what you said—just go into do it mode. You uh-huh. know, you got to go into do it mode fast. Uh huh. Oh. Does it scare you, or does it make you go, I can do this, let's do this, this is what I'm here for? Yeah, I've never get scared. Yeah, I don't either. Never I mean, it's, scared. Yeah. i tell you one time, I almost kind of got scared. <laughs> when was that? It's a Bongo Joe story. <laughs> oh, boy, Bongo, Bongo Joe. Joe, I love Bongo Joe. Bongo Joe was this really big man, Uh-huh. right? And he played two 50-gallon 50, 50 oil drums. And this is back in the day. This is way back. This, this is all the way back to 1971. Exactly. Okay, go ahead. Of course, I had bought his album from Barhui. Uh-huh. It was the weirdest stuff I ever heard. <laughs> ever. <laughs> yeah. He's playing... The, these are not steel drums like with notes and songs. Right. Like he's wearing a hatchet in his belt <laughs> to tune them. Yeah. If he doesn't like the sound, you go, bang, bang, bang with the hatchet. Oh, oh that's better. <laughs> <laughs> he played with... These steel pipes that had tape at the end to hold, had a bulb of tape on the end, and had a little oil can taped in the middle of it filled with shot, gunshot stuff. Uh-huh. So he could play snare. He, could, he had um, maracas sort of going the whole time he's playing. Crazy. So obviously, I said, like, let's get this guy. Uh-huh. <laughs> so we get him. So I said, I'm going out to me. I'm going out to pick him up. He comes walking off. Out of the air, walking up out of the airport. I don't know how six what he is, uh-huh. and he ain't fat. Uh-huh. So he's wearing purple Bermuda shorts, big Bermuda shorts come down to just above his knee. Uh-huh. He's wearing a shirt with purple fortuies, not fortuies, um, a purple shirt and a big purple fez uh-huh. on his head with, uh-huh. with a. Um, a tassel hanging off of it, right? Uh-huh. Um, Paisley's. Purple Paisley uh-huh. shirt, big purple uh, shorts, purple fez, and he's wearing paratrooper army boots. Uh-huh. Okay, with, um, yeah, paratrooper army boots, just to complete the thing. I don't know if he had the axe in his belt at that time. <laughs> he might have. Um so he comes walking out with a little blue Samsonite suitcase. It was his carry-on. Uh-huh. And he, 
you know, he comes out. We're coming. Now, he would only stay at the Fairmont Roosevelt uh-huh. because that was the last hotel downtown to integrate. Uh-huh. And that's where he wanted to stay. Uh-huh. Now, y'all show think, them. Y'all think you're not having black people. I'll show you having black people. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So this little blue Samsonite case, I noticed it has a speaker, two speakers uh-huh. mounted in the outside. Uh-huh. That's unusual. So he had taken this suitcase and built it. He had a cassette machine inside where the, the buttons came up at the top. Uh-huh. And he could hit a button. And he had an amplifier or something. He, had a, he could hit a button and play the, the Samsonite. Uh-huh. And on his cassette was hysterical laughter. Uh-huh. Real hysterical laughter. <laughs> that was what the suitcase played. <laughs> So we're driving into town. We get at a red light, and there'd be a, a nice lady standing at a bus stop. Ah! Hold the thing out the window and play the laughter at him. So we get to the Fairmont. What are you doing? What is what is your like? You're driving through town with this, with Bongo Joe, and he's doing this stuff. Okay, go ahead. So we get down to the Fairmont, and I'm like, oh. This is going to be, I don't know what this is going to be, uh-huh. but it's going to be something. Mm-hmm. hope it's not something like I think it could be something. <laughs> <laughs> so he gets out of the car, walks up the steps to the Fairmont. Takes The Fairmont has this long central hall. Uh-huh. You have to go down to register and stuff. Steps right inside of the, the long hall and pushes the button. <laughs> and here's this big guy in a purple fez and purple shorts and a purple paisley shirt. In the last out, hotel to integrate. Yeah. <laughs> paratrooper boots. And he's carrying, a, and, he's, and he's emanating hysterical laughter. <laughs> pretty loud. Right down through the middle of the Fairmont. Wow. That rates a story. Yes. That rates a story. <laughs> I want to know what happened then. Did he get in? Yeah. Okay, good. Oh, yeah, he had to get in. Yeah. <laughs> With some trepidation on their part, I, I gotta say. <laughs> but that was Bongo Joe. Oh man, he was great. Yeah, he was amazing. He's in the Jazz Fest movie. Yeah, he is. He yeah. is. He yeah. is. How did you find him? How did you? Did you go finding? How did? You know what him? it was? What? Chris Strakowitz. Oh, okay. Come from Germany, uh-huh. and was one of the two or three people, Alan Lomax. That went down through the South, mm-hmm. you know, exploring. Chris Drakowitz discovered Lightning Hopkins. He discovered Clifton Chenier. Wow. He discovered old Cajun music. He discovered Zydeco music. He discovered all kinds of stuff, uh-huh. right? So I started buying and blues for sure. Uh, he didn't discover blues, but I mean, he was were... finding all the great blues players that were un- unknown. So I started buying. These are Hooli records. So Chris started our Hooli records and started recording these people, yeah. right? Okay, so I ahead. figured, found out about it, and I bought every Arhuli album that came out. Uh-huh. That's how I found. That was kind of my lighthouse into the festival. Oh, uh-huh, okay. Because the people that I had found on those records, like Bucka White, uh-huh. you know, White and Hopkins, were people that I went out to get because that was the music that I loved. Personally. Uh-huh. It was a jazz festival, but I'm a blues guy. Right. Um. So, one of the albums was Bongo. Bongo Joe was playing in front of the Alamo at night. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. So, when I got the album of Bongo Joe, and it was the weirdest thing I've ever heard. I <laughs> promise you. If I go dig it out and play it, you think it's totally weird. It's just him and his beating, and then he starts whistling. Uh-huh. Oddly. <laughs> <laughs> Not just any whistle. But strong. Uh-huh. You know, as yeah. part of the song. Right. Like he was a horn player or something. So that it was on our Hooey record, and I said, "I got to get this guy." Oh, that's so great! We brought him over. I remember back in the old days when I first started, he was still there and he was playing. Yeah, we'd go out and find stuff. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But a lot of it came through the Arhui uh-huh. label. Yeah. Wow, that's cool. That's yeah, cool. Miracles. I it think is. that my whole career is what you can do if you don't know any better. <laughs> I like that. I yeah. like that. Yeah, so you That's just go really and good. do it. Yeah. We got four stages. Oh, we got eight st- We're down here in the swamp. Uh-huh. We're not connected to the outside world and the right. rock, rock festivals or anything. Right. Yeah, eight stages. Okay, well, let's, let's go make eight stages. Gospel tent. Yeah. I had a gospel tent from the beginning. Yeah, you did. Actually, in the first two years we were at Congo Square, uh-huh. it was... A little sort of tent top with, you know, 
uh-huh. tent poles around. Yeah, yeah. That was it. Uh-huh. No sides. Right. No stage, no platform. There was an upright piano in the grass. Uh-huh. And the God, we had, I had found three or four gospel groups, and they would go gather in there and stand around the piano under the little tent top and sing gospel. Yeah. So all the things that really started the festival, the uh, Second Line, mm-hmm. Mardi Gras Indians, Funk, Cajun, Zydeco, um, Gospel, it was all there. Uh-huh. Bluegrass country. That first year, the first couple of years, uh-huh. and now it's just, you know, bigger, bigger, more of it, but it's still the same things. Yeah, well, that is so cool, Quinn Davis. You are amazing, and you're cool, and you're fun, and fun. you're fun. You're very fun, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm so glad that I've gotten to work with you for all these years. And I want to go for like 40 more years. Is that cool? You and I together working on this festival. At least 40. Well, it sounds like a very heavenly contract. <laughs> Let's make it happen. <laughs> 40 years. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm taking five at a time. Oh, okay. All right. Whatever. Okay. All I'm right. renewing my contract for five years of life. Okay, good. <laughs> thank you so much for talking to me today. Oh, thank this you great for fun. having me. I like it. Let's do it again. You know, we forgot something, right? But we didn't forget anything. I had to go. I had to buy you boogaloo. I had to make signs for that. And then, and then I had to jump right in my truck and get up here because I got the Green River Festival. I got, I got, um, what's the other one? Newport. I got Newport right after Oh, yeah, that, right that, that little festival called Newport. Right. Exactly. Okay. All good. Right. So, yeah. So, so, yeah, so right before you left, we did a little uh-huh. interview. Yeah. With Quinn Davis. <laughs> I remember that one. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, oh, so, so yeah, what, what were your thoughts? My thoughts were having that much time to sit down with Quinn Davis and hear the stories was so much fun. It's actually, that's been a dream of mine is to do that. And years ago, I came up with the idea because Quinn and Tag, all those guys, all those people I've known for Jasmine, with Jazz Fest. I've worked for Jazz Fest for almost 40 years now. We've been through a lot together, a lot of wild-ass times. And years ago, before podcasts were even a thing, I decided I wanted to start some sort of thing called um, Road Hard. Because <laughs> being on the road is hard, road and hard. it is wild. Yeah. And so I've, been, I've always, always, always wanted to interview Quint and start getting those stories. And to be able to do that with you in Quinn's house in was his so kitchen. much fun. In his kitchen. That was so much fun. I loved it. I want to do it again and again and again. In fact, we've got to do it some more because there are so many stories just about Chuck Berry alone that right. he didn't have time to tell. Right. <laughs> we, we can just do the Chuck Berry episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We can yeah. break it up. Yeah, my, my, yes. my favorite part, though, was at the end of the interview when he got up and pulled out some Tupperware and sent you home with chicken and yes. and, and, a, and a quarter of a muffalata. <laughs> I know. I love that so much. That was so cool. Quint is just, he's such a cool person. Yeah. He is such a yeah. cool person. Yeah, I and his house so is just much. a museum. It's just incredible. Yes. Yeah. Yes, yes. And it was funny, too, because, you know, I love the stories, and I've always wanted to just hang out with Quint and hear stories. So I'm, I was trying to find a way to say that without sounding weird, without sounding like I'm coming on to him or something. So I said, Quint, I don't want to sound weird. And he said, Nan, you're always weird. Yeah. Which is true. Yeah. <laughs> Which is true. But I just love stories. And Quint's got so many stories. Yeah. That was fun. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So you're on your way. You. You're on your way. I'm on, yeah. And, uh-huh. and uh, this is going to be our fi- finale for season one. It was a fantastic season one. I think we, uh, I think it we pulled was. it off. Yeah, I think so. And it was so cool too because it was not 
it was definitely unpremeditated. It was me saying, hey, Tracy, I don't have my radio show anymore. And you said, let's do a podcast. And then it happened in the middle of the most busy time of my entire life, probably. Of all the road hard years I've had, this year at Jazz was so busy. And yet we did this. And it was so much fun. I loved it. Thank you so much for making it happen. Thank well, you. Uh, if you could see me at this moment, like I'm holding one microphone over the cell phone and I'm in an echoey room with a towel over my head trying to talk into <laughs> the other microphone. It's like, it's just a really apropos sort of close to the events. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah, it's just like, and here we are, you're in a truck somewhere in Connecticut. Like it's, yeah, yes. it's kind of perfect. Okay. So let's, uh, this is our... Uh, our uh, launch off into our hiatus but we'll be back at yep. this in a few weeks a yet to be determined yep. but small period of time um just yep. so we can get our act together and figure out how to do this remotely um certainly well, it's going to be better than up. this it's going to be better than what we're doing right now <laughs> I, I think I, i'm missing some some essential equipment <laughs> so that just means that that underscores the idea that you've got to come up here now and so we can continue this on the road, ah, literally road hard up here on the road. Yeah, I think um, it was like, like episode before. five or something. We explored the idea that I don't like to fly. So we're going to have to work that out. <laughs> yeah, but you, you like driving. You're good at driving. I also like, like the train. I'll take the train. I'll bring a good yeah, train. Book. That'd be cool. I'll bring That'd a good cool. book. All right, good. <laughs> right, yeah. man. Well, look, you drive yeah. safe. Okay. And, Thank you. Um, Thank you. And I know we'll be talking soon. Yes, indeed. All yes, right. indeed. Thank you so much for making this happen, Tracy. It all is right. all one. Anytime, fun. man. Have a great day. <laughs> okay. Bye. Oh, you too. Bye. Bye.